Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. Part 4. Be a Leader. How to Change People Without Giving Offense or Arousing Resentment. Chapter 1. If You Must Find Fault, This is the Way to Begin. A friend of mine was a guest at the White House for a weekend during the administration of Calvin Coolidge. Drifting into the President's private office, he heard Coolidge say to one of his secretaries, That's a pretty dress you're wearing this morning, and you're a very attractive young woman. That was probably the most effusive praise Silent Cal had ever bestowed upon a secretary in his life. It was so unusual, so unexpected, that the secretary blushed in confusion. And then Coolidge said, Now don't get stuck up. I just said that to make you feel good. From now on, I wish you would be a little bit more careful with your punctuation. His method was probably a bit obvious, but the psychology was superb. It's always easier to listen to unpleasant things after we have heard some praise of our good points. A barber lathers a man before he shaves him, and that is precisely what McKinley did back in 1896 when he was running for president. One of the prominent Republicans of that day had written a campaign speech that he felt was just a trifle better than Cicero and Patrick Henry and Daniel Webster all rolled into one. With great glee, this chap read his immortal speech aloud to McKinley. The speech had its fine points, but it just wouldn't do. It would have raised a tornado of criticism. McKinley didn't want to hurt the man's feelings. He must not kill the man's splendid enthusiasm, and yet he had to say no. Note how adroitly he did it. My friend, that is a splendid speech, a magnificent speech, McKinley said. No one could have prepared a better one. There are many occasions on which it would be precisely the right thing to say. But is it quite suitable to this particular occasion? Sound and sober as it is from your standpoint, I must consider its effect from the party's standpoint. Now, you go home and write a speech along the lines I indicate and send me a copy of it. He did just that. McKinley blue-penciled and helped him rewrite his second speech, and he became one of the effective speakers of the campaign. Here is the second most famous letter that Abraham Lincoln ever wrote. His most famous one was written to Mrs. Bixby, expressing his sorrow for the death of the five sons she had lost in battle. Lincoln probably dashed this letter off in five minutes. Yet it sold at public auction in 1926 for $12,000. And that, by the way, was more money than Lincoln was able to save during half a century of hard work. The letter was written to General Joseph Hooker on April 26, 1863, during the darkest period of the Civil War. For 18 months, Lincoln's generals had been leading the Union Army from one tragic defeat to another. Nothing but futile, stupid human butchery. The nation was appalled. Thousands of soldiers had deserted from the army, and even the Republican members of the Senate had revolted and wanted to force Lincoln out of the White House. We are now on the brink of destruction, Lincoln said. It appears to me that even the Almighty is against us. I can hardly see a ray of hope. Such was the period of black sorrow and chaos out of which this letter came. 
I am including the letter here because it shows how Lincoln tried to change an obstreperous general when the very fate of the nation could have depended upon the general's action. This is perhaps the sharpest letter Abe Lincoln wrote after he became president, yet you will note that he praised General Hooker before he spoke of his grave faults. Yes, they were grave faults, but Lincoln didn't call them that. Lincoln was more conservative, more diplomatic. Lincoln wrote, There are some things in regard to which I am not quite satisfied with you. Talk about tact and diplomacy. Here is the letter addressed to General Hooker. I have placed you at the head of the Army of the Potomac. Of course, I have done this upon what appears to me to be sufficient reasons, and yet I think it best for you to know that there are some things in regard to which I am not quite satisfied with you. I believe you to be a brave and skillful soldier, which, of course, I like. I also believe you do not mix politics with your profession, in which you are right. You have confidence in yourself, which is a valuable, if not an indispensable, quality. You are ambitious, which, within reasonable bounds, does good rather than harm. But I think that during General Burnside's command of the army, you have taken counsel of your ambition and thwarted him as much as you could, in which you did a great wrong to the country and to a most meritorious and honorable brother officer. I have heard in such a way as to believe it of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up as dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. The government will support you to the utmost of its ability, which is neither more nor less than it has done and will do for all commanders. I much fear that the spirit which you have aided to infuse into the army of criticizing their commander and withholding confidence from him will now turn upon you. I shall assist you, as far as I can, to put it down. Neither you nor Napoleon, if he were alive again, could get any good out of an army while such spirit prevails in it. And now beware of rashness, beware of rashness, but with energy and sleepless vigilance go forward and give us victories. You are not a Coolidge, a McKinley, or a Lincoln. You want to know whether this philosophy will operate for you in everyday business contacts. Will it? Let's see. Let's take the case of W.P. Gaw of the Wark Company of Philadelphia. The Wark Company had contracted to build and complete a large office building in Philadelphia by a certain specified date. Everything was going along well. The building was almost finished when suddenly the subcontractor making the ornamental bronze work to go on the exterior of this building declared that he couldn't make delivery on schedule. What? An entire building held up? Heavy penalties, distressing losses, all because of one man. Long-distance telephone calls, arguments, heated conversations, all in vain. Then Mr. Gall was sent to New York to beard the bronze lion in his den. Do you know you're the only person in Brooklyn with your name? Mr. Gaw asked the president of the subcontracting firm shortly after they were introduced. The president was surprised. Oh, no, I, I didn't know that. Well, Mr. Gaw said, when I got off the train this morning, I looked in the telephone book to get your address, and you're the only person in the Brooklyn phone book with your name. Oh, I, I never knew that, the subcontractor said. 
He checked the phone book with interest. Well, it's an unusual name, he said proudly. My family came from Holland and settled in New York almost 200 years ago. He continued to talk about his family and his ancestors for several minutes. When he finished that, Mr. Gaw complimented him on how large a plant he had and compared it favorably with a number of similar plants he'd visited. It's one of the cleanest and neatest bronze factories I ever saw, said Gaw. Well, I've spent a lifetime building up this business, the subcontractor said, and I'm rather proud of it. Would you like to take a look around the factory? During this tour of inspection, Mr. Gaw complimented the other man on his system of fabrication and told him how and why it seemed superior to those of some of his competitors. Gaw commented on some unusual machines, and the subcontractor announced that he himself had invented those machines. He spent considerable time showing Gaw how they operated and the superior work they turned out. He insisted on taking his visitor to lunch. As so far, mind you, not a word had been said about the real purpose of Gaw's visit. After lunch, the subcontractor said, Now to get down to business. Naturally, I know why you're here. I didn't expect that our meeting would be so enjoyable. You can go back to Philadelphia with my promise that your materials will be fabricated and shipped, even if other orders have to be delayed. Mr. Gaw got everything that he wanted without even asking for it. The materials arrived on time, and the building was completed on the day the completion contract specified. Would this have happened had Mr. Gaw used the hammer and dynamite method generally employed on such occasions? Dorothy Rublevsky, a branch manager of the Fort Monmouth, New Jersey Federal Credit Union, reported to one of our classes how she was able to help one of her employees become more productive. We recently hired a young lady as a teller trainee. Her contact with our customers was very good. She was accurate and efficient in handling individual transactions. The problem developed at the end of the day when it was time to balance out. The head teller came to me and strongly suggested that I fire this woman. She's holding up everyone else because she's so slow in balancing out. I've shown her over and over, but she can't get it. She's got to go. The next day, I observed her working quickly and accurately when handling the normal everyday transactions, and she was very pleasant to our customers. It didn't take long to discover why she had trouble balancing out. After the office closed, I went over to talk with her. She was obviously nervous and upset. I praised her for being so friendly and outgoing with the customers and complimented her for the accuracy and speed used in that work. I then suggested we review the procedure we use in balancing the cash drawer. Once she realized I had confidence in her, she easily followed my suggestions and soon mastered this function. We've had no problems with her since then. Beginning with praise is like the dentist who begins his work with Novocaine. The patient still gets a drilling, but the Novocaine is pain-killing. A leader will use... Principle 1. Begin with praise and honest appreciation.